Last time on Underfunded. They came up to me afterwards, because it was obviously a pretty gut-wrenching sort of thing, and they, they kind of patted me on the back and said, Dr. Badhams, I, you know, this must be really hard for you. Yeah, I just told them they weren't going to have jobs. Um, so I barely made it back to my office without breaking down. <clears throat> but anyway, so this, this guy told me to go back and fire some more people. Cause, so you can imagine what my thoughts were. I'm Melanie Bavaria. I'm Meg St. Esprit, and this is Underfunded. So in the last episode, we began a road trip around Pennsylvania, trying to show that underfunding is not just an issue in the state's major urban centers. We visited a couple different locations, Erie and Allentown, to hear about what students and administrators are experiencing there. Yeah, so we wanted to make sure that we moved through all the different parts of the state, the east part, the west part, but also looking at a variety of different types of communities to see if this is an issue that impacts all types of communities in Pennsylvania, uh, not just the ones that generally get the most coverage. Yeah, and I think it was really apparent. I mean, I knew it going in because we had done the interviews and talked to these people, but when you really listen to it and get the big picture, it becomes so clear that there's no way to just say that this is a problem for only one certain type of student in Pennsylvania. So this week on the show, we're gonna look at a couple different areas. We're gonna move from some suburbs around Pittsburgh to a very rural community about halfway between Pittsburgh and Erie. And then we're gonna also talk to an organization that focuses on rural schools. But for now, we're gonna continue on our road trip. Next, we're gonna stop in Ambridge, which is an old steel town on the Ohio River, about 30 minutes outside Pittsburgh. Brittany Allen lives there with her daughter, Brielle. She's been struggling to find a quality school for her because their home school is underfunded and failing. It's ironic because Brittany had the exact same issue as a kid herself. Brittany's daughter, Brielle, was zoned to Highland Elementary School. It's 50% students of color, 100% free and reduced lunch, and has a budget shortfall of about $2,500 per student. It was pretty much like you can tell, like they fit as many kids as they can in one room. Uh, very um, herd-like almost, like, you know, it's just, I feel, felt like it was for the money and then I feel like they're severely underfunded um, and how they handle bullying situations. This is something that a lot of parents, especially parents who end up moving their children out of public schools, uh, this is one of the criticisms that they often have of their local public schools. And while that's, while it's frustrating for parents to have 30 or more students in a classroom, one of the main reasons why that's the case is because the schools in this state are so underfunded uh, that they can't necessarily have two they can't split up the class. And so some of the criticisms of public schools are actually not the fault of the school, but in fact, the fault of the fact that the school doesn't have enough money to provide uh, the type of education that they'd like to for their students and families. Yeah, exactly. I know that when my oldest, who is going to be a fourth grader in the fall, was in kindergarten, his class had 26 students, many with high needs. And it was an absolute nightmare. And I have to say, even working in this field and knowing that our school is barely adequately funded, I mean, we are we are we don't have enough to really do what we need to do, but we have more than some other schools around us. Even knowing that that wasn't their fault, it was really hard for me to not place blame on the school for the experience he had because you're living the reality day to day with your kid coming home a mess because they're not getting the attention they need. And then just two years later, when my twins were in kindergarten, 
which they had only half a school year because of the pandemic, they only had 17 in their class. And it was such a different experience. And so, you know, even though I know the bigger picture of why the school couldn't make the classes smaller for Brielle, I absolutely get the parental frustration at the school, even if the problem comes from higher up. Because as a parent, that's your day-to-day. You're thinking about the building they're walking into. You know, the funding formula and everything we're talking about on this podcast isn't in the forefront of your mind when your kid is crying about the fact that, you know, they basically didn't have any of the attention they needed to get through the work that day. And then if you look at it at a school level, I mean, if you have 30 students in a class and the district where Brielle's homeschool was uh, is underfunded by over $2,000 per student. That's a significant amount of money just for that class. Imagine what 30 times two, $60,000 would do for not only the teachers and the school, but the what they could do for those that class of students with that amount of money. I can't even imagine. Like, if you were able to give a kindergarten class $60,000... And, and I know that it's not just straight up like that. There's other costs involved in, in building maintenance and things. But, oh my goodness, you know, in the schools I've worked in, teachers are trying to figure out what they can get from Oriental Trading Catalog to put in a prize box or asking parents to donate free things they got at different events. To, I mean, there's just so much that funding can do. And so it's no surprise that the teachers at Highland weren't able to create what Brittany felt was a robust and vibrant education because they probably felt like they're drowning every day. Not dynamic or vibrant. It felt very um, kind of regular almost where I feel like Baden, they engage the children to be creative and to grow and to thrive. Baden Academy is the charter school where Brielle eventually ended up in first grade. I didn't see the spark at Highland like I see at Baden. Okay. So in their education, Highland may be more just like kind of cookie cutter basics. Um, very, very. That's a good way to put it. Okay. Cookie cutter will get you through, will turn you out. I think the message is kind of with like, okay, this, the schools don't have enough. They have to have a lot of kids in the class, right? That's like one of the issues. But also one of the issues is that p- teachers are fulfilling the roles of counselors, are fulfilling the Mm -hmm. roles of nurses, are fulfilling the roles of all of these different, they're wearing so many hats for so many kids at the same time that it's really hard uh, to manage uh, dynamics between students. It's really hard to manage classroom dynamics uh, generally when you're trying to do so many things um, at the same time. And what would be really helpful is if you had more counselors in schools, if you had more adults in the school who were able um, to kind of intervene and it wasn't just the teacher, but that becomes really hard when the school doesn't have enough funding to hire more bodies, you know, hire more parents, like adults. Right. The one thing Brittany said is that there, I asked if there was an aide in the classroom because a lot of the classrooms in our school have an aide or a paraprofessional. And she said that there was not, but they sometimes would bring down a high school student to help out, which obviously can be a great experience for the high school student, but it's also putting a lot of pressure on someone who's not a professional to manage classroom dynamics in an overcrowded classroom. And so it's no wonder that things like bullying or inappropriate interactions between kids, harmful interactions are happening without anyone 
noticing or able to really handle it. Because really what you just end up with is teachers that are firefighting. I mean, they're, I don't know any teacher that wants to do a bad job. But I know teachers I don't that know. don't. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I would say, I know I teachers. Don't... <laughs> go ahead, Mal. I'm done. Go. I also don't know any teachers who want to have 30 plus kids in their class. Right? Like, teachers don't want that many students. Schools don't want to have that many students in one classroom. Teachers would love to have 15 students. Um, teachers would love to only have to manage the, the, the needs, the dynamics, the, um, the educational needs of students uh, and social-emotional needs of students for that many kids. Like, nobody asks, no teacher goes into this profession thinking, you know what I really want is 30 to 35 students per class. Right. I have many friends that are elementary school teachers, and all of them love kids and love teaching. And so many of them are so burned out on their, you know, 25, 30, 35 kids in their classes with or without help. And then when you look at the counselor side of it, I mean, my goodness, I know our school has a wait list right now to see the counselor in a pandemic where every kid has been through a trauma. And that's another issue that's tied to funding. You know, again, I think as the parent, we can say, oh, I'm so frustrated. Our school doesn't have enough counselors. Our school is messing up. But do you think the school doesn't want to have enough counselors? Do you think they want to run the only counselor they have into the ground? No, they don't have the money to hire more. And, if the um, school has a counselor at all. Right. Yeah, exactly. I know that we're lucky. And I do know next year we're actually going to have have more counselors in the school. Thank goodness. And some of that is, you know, changes in pandemic funding and whatnot. But that didn't help Brielle because they just did not have the social emotional support that she needed. And you have parents then trying to make really difficult decisions about what's best for their kid um, that might go against their desires to really support their local schools. Absolutely. I mean, Brittany said herself that she's worked in the public schools. She worked in the Head Start program. She values them. She's a graduate of public schools. But the underfunding that her school experienced meant that it is not a place that was effective for educating her child, sadly. As a kid, Brittany's family had the same debate. She was also in a struggling school, and her family decided to move to another school district, the Freedom Area School District, so that she could go to a better-funded school. The move was complicated because this also meant that she was one of the few black students in her school, which is a tough spot to put a kid in. I can just speak to my um, experience of being an only black child at Freedom. Um, racism is definitely real, obviously. and um, But I will say that the Freedom School District didn't make me feel that racism from the teachers. So I did appreciate that. They had a great education, but the students... So you can tell, like, there's parents that are racist there. So, um, you know, it, it can be ostracizing being the only black kid in a wealthier school. So we've looked at East and West, and the issue of underfunding persists in both. There are even suburban districts with high poverty rates um, and massively underfunded schools. But what about the rural parts of the state? I mean, much of Pennsylvania is, in fact, rural. Many people we spoke to had this idea that underfunding predominantly is an urban issue in Pennsylvania. And while it's true that if you're a black or brown student, you are much more likely to attend a school that is underfunded, it's really a widespread issue. 
On our website, fundourschoolspa.org, we have an interactive map where you can roll over various districts and see how much of a budget shortfall they have per student. Bianca McClelland is currently a middle school special education teacher in the Slippery Rock Area School District, which is about halfway between Pittsburgh and Erie on our little road trip. It's underfunded, but this is not her first experience working in a school that lacks funds. Before this school year, she was a teacher in Duquesne City Schools, an urban district just east of Pittsburgh. Duquesne was taken over by the state due to poor test scores in 2000. Things have not improved since then. Despite their very different geography, she sees so many similarities between the two districts. So um, I feel like, for for example, when I was at Duquesne, um, I was given a budget, for example, for anything that I needed for my classroom, where it was decorations, where it was anything specific for what I was teaching, materials and things like as such. Um, I relied a lot on donors choose to get anything that was that I wanted for my students and would not fit in my budget. Um, at Slippery Rock, I'm not given a budget, for example, but um, we are still not one-on-one -on -one as far as technology is concerned, which was a huge problem this year with remote learning. Um, the Duquesne, they had iPads one-on-one -on -one, um, and they had received those prior to me leaving. And I wanna say they were bought through a grant, um, which is what they, how they funded a lot of the projects that they had at the school. Um, they moved towards a project-based learning for their students and a maker space. And um, everything they had was basically funded through grants or donor choose projects from the teachers. Um, here, I can tell that my students are not as exposed to the newest trends in education that I've seen in the city. Um, like they don't have a makerspace, they're not heavy in STEM, um, they're not um, trying to think, there's not a lot of project-based learning per se approach to, to instruction, and I would Yes, it is probably due to funding, um, or it's one of those things that it hasn't reached this area yet. It's just, I'm sitting here listening to this and I'm thinking about the absurdity of the fact that, you know, the state is so poorly funding districts that we're discussing the different ways to fundraise for the basic things kids need to succeed. Like... I just feel like it just hit me this morning, like how absurd that is. I, when, I mean, when Bianca said that, it really clicked for me. There's been different projects our school has fundraised for or had donated, including a makerspace, by local organizations, and we've celebrated that. And I mean, absolutely, we should. That's great that those local organizations were able to step up. You know, some of them have been businesses, some of them have been you know, through crowdfunding. But why are we having to crowdfund or have businesses donate makerspaces? Like, what does that say about the state of Pennsylvania? Like, there is no standard of adequacy, period. There's none. No, and it relies on local communities or philanthropic organizations or things like that to just support schools on their own, but doesn't want to actually take the responsibility to do it themselves um, in a more equitable and across the state type of way. Uh, instead, it's just if you're, you know, if your district can has a group of people who can afford to donate to a makerspace, that's great. But if you don't, 
then you don't have a makerspace. How is that equal in any way? Well, and when you look at the fact that Slippery Rock Area School District doesn't have those same type of community partnerships, I mean, it's very rural. It's a large school district land-wise, even though it's fairly small student population-wise. And so those type of community partnerships just aren't going to exist the same way a school in a metro area will have more companies or organizations that want to put their name on a room or show up for a volunteer day, things like that. So the ability to fill the gaps is also going to be totally based on the community you're in, how vocal your teachers are, how much extra time they spend writing grants, which is not easy. And I mean, it's really just like playing playing roulette with kids' futures. And in fact, this is what Edward Albert says exactly. He's the executive director of the Pennsylvania Association of Rural and Small Schools, which is known as PARS. But for him, he travels to schools all over the district. They represent 200 small and rural school districts. Well, you know, it's funny. Somebody came up to me one time and asked this question. If you had to be poor, would you rather be poor in an urban setting or in a rural setting? Now think about that question. Where would, if you had to be poor, where would you rather be poor? Urban or a rural setting? The answer clearly for me is an urban setting. Let me tell you why. Let's say you would need services of WIC. Let's say you would need some mental health services. Let's say you would need hospital. Let's say the biggest one, the T word, transportation. So if I'm poor and living outside of Philadelphia, I have the capability of taking train, subway, bus, somewhere, somewhere to get some type of services to help me. Now, let's take you and put you into a poor setting in a school district of 500 square miles. You're going to have to really think about when you get in that car, what errands you have to run. And you're going to have to think that if I start this car up and drive, the amount of gas that I'm going to need to do to get shopping, perhaps for groceries, food, maybe do some type of entertainment, or it it better be in one swing space. So you have some places you have some places in our uh, state that have a geographical area for their school district of 500 miles, 500 miles. And, and some of these uh, areas uh, that I can drive for 30 minutes and not even have phone service on my cellular phone. Some of these communities are so small, so rural, if you will, that the hub to the wheel in those communities is a school. You take the school away and, and, and tumbleweed would almost come through that community. So that school is a hub to the wheel. That's the center. That's where you are on a Friday and a Saturday night. And that's where the action takes place for the community. That, that I, again, that, that's the center of attraction. You know, funding is an issue for everybody. So I, I think when you take, uh, if you would take the uh, plane up to 30,000 feet and look down at Pennsylvania um, from 30,000 feet, you know, uh, funding is an issue um, across the entire Commonwealth. And, you know, we, it's a known fact for people to get a quality education leads them to a quality life. A quality life 
leads them to a quality uh, community. And there's a chain reaction to this. So I don't think anybody should be short-sighted at all when it comes to education and the monies because of the zip code that they live in. I feel like, you know, this is probably, I shouldn't say this, but in the Trump era, there was a lot of trying to tell rural people they were poor because of politics and trying to kind of pit groups against one another. And I almost feel like that's happened with schools a little bit too. But again, it comes back to we've just not been given enough to divide up amongst everyone. Um, And I think that the rural poor do often really get overlooked in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of really impoverished communities in the very rural areas of the state that have access to nothing. no mental health services, addiction services. Um, And I just think that we just forget about it. Yeah, and I think that the, I think that the focus, especially in media coverage is so urban focused because that's where the media community is most of the time, but also because, um, you know, that's, they serve the most kids. But at the same time, um, I think we, I agree that we overlook the needs of some of these rural areas that the, the source might be the same, the, the problem exists and the origin of the problem is still um, Pennsylvania's inadequate education funding, uh, but it manifests differently um, and in a way that is often not covered uh, in the same way. Yeah, and I think that when we look at these urban and rural communities, you know, my goal for people listening in is not to try to make them decide which group has it worse off, but kind of this, you know, we're, we're all in this together. You know, the entire point of the education system from when America first decided to have free public education was to be able to raise up and educate citizens that could be part of a republic, um, vote, be informed, things like that. And if you look at that as the reason for public education, you know, we should all be on the same side here of saying Pennsylvania students, whether they live in a rural farm community or an urban center or a suburb, should all have access to a quality education. Like it shouldn't, it should be not a question. It should be a no brainer. That's the root of it, really. That's why we're doing this whole podcast is to help people understand how more and more and more over the years, this has become a more significant problem. Next time on Underfunded, we'll dive into the history of how we even got here in the first place. Underfunded is a project of the Public Interest Law Center with grant support from the William Penn Foundation. For more information on the fight to fairly fund public schools in Pennsylvania, visit fundourschoolspa.org.